Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Susan Marks. I'm from the Law Department at the LSE, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you all to this event co-hosted by the Centre for the Study of Human Rights and the Department of Sociology at LSE, entitled Extradition and the Erosion of Human Rights. In the late 1990s, a student came to me wanting to write a PhD on extradition and human rights. It seemed like a great topic. There had been a series of cases in the European Court of Human Rights and elsewhere which signalled shifts in international human rights law affecting extradition. The landmark case was, of course, Surin and the UK. Sorry, I'm touching something. Um, yeah. Just all my slides, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. how, do I, how do I go back on this? I think we have to... Maybe we go f- one further down. No. Then I will have to move you all up again through it, okay? <laughs> how do I get this slide? Think of it as entertainment. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. Right, there we are, back at the beginning. Okay, so a series of cases in the European Court of Human Rights and elsewhere had signaled shifts in international human rights law affecting extradition. And the moment seemed right at that time, the late 1990s, to examine those shifts and take stock of their significance, implications and limits. My student duly began her work, and all was... Oh, God, I keep doing this. Sorry. <laughs> what am I touching? I, I'm, am I touching the screen? I guess I'm touching the screen. Sensitive. I'm going to stand away from this. <laughs> right. Okay. The student duly began her work, and all was going swimmingly until, in ways we'll be discussing tonight, the world changed around her project. As the post-9-11 counterterrorism agenda began to take root, it no longer made sense to hold extradition analytically stable and look only at shifts in human rights law. Extradition law was shifting too. Of course, the details varied from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but the relaxation of rendition criteria and the retrenchment of justice safeguards were pervasive and unmistakable. If we still needed to ask how changes in human rights affected the law and practice of extradition, we also needed to ask how changes in extradition were, for their part, affecting the enjoyment of human rights. My student finished her project, and I wish I could say that since then, the importance and urgency of that latter question has receded. The impetus behind our gathering tonight is, of course, that it hasn't. Rather the reverse. Extradition has got caught up in the politics of fear, the rise of the security state, and the normalization and globalization of a whole range of now familiar technologies that include supermax prisons, racial profiling, and the use of secret evidence. To help us get to grips with what's been going on and think through what it means and where it's taking us, we have a stellar panel of speakers tonight. Uh, On my immediate left is Saskia Sassen, Robert S. Lind, Professor of Sociology and Co-Chair of the Fables Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University in New York. 
a trailblazer in the emergence of globalization, cities, land grabs, and much else besides as fields of academic study. She's the author of many books, among them Losing Control, Sovereignty in the Age of Globalization, The Global City, Cities in a World Economy, Guests and Aliens, Territory Authority, Rights, and now Expulsions, Brutality and Complexity in the Global Economy, published uh, last year. She's received diverse awards and is regularly included in lists of the top global thinkers and intellectual leaders worldwide. To Saskia's left is Gareth Pierce, a solicitor uh, with a long, and I'm afraid this is the only word, heroic record of representing individuals who are or have been the subject of rendition of torture, held in prisons in the UK on the basis of secret evidence and interned in secret prisons abroad under regimes that continue to practice torture. Her many clients have included the Birmingham Six, Judith Ward, the family of Jean-Charles de Menezes and Mosenbeck. Her book, Dispatches on the Dark Side, is an acclaimed examination of the British government's complicity in torture. And to Gareth's left is Jean Theoharis, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. A leading scholar of 20th century African-American history and civil rights, uh, she's the author or co-author, too, of numerous books, including Freedom North, Concerning Black Freedom Struggles Outside the South, 1940-1980, Want to Start a Revolution, wonderful book title, Radical Women in the Black Freedom Struggle, Not Working Latina Immigrants, Low-Wage Jobs and the Failure of Welfare Reform, These Yet-to-Be-United States, another wonderful title, Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, in America since 1945, and the recent award-winning The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, initially published in 2013. Jean is co-founder of Educators for Civil Liberties. The format of the event tonight is that each speaker uh, will uh, speak for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for discussion. The event will finish at 8 p.m., and you're invited to a reception outside the theatre afterwards. I'm directed to ask you to silence your mobile phones, please, at this time. And also, uh, I want to mention that if anyone would like to comment on the event uh, using Twitter, the suggested hashtag is, as you see there, hash LSE extradition. This event is being recorded and technology permitting, we hope to have a podcast online next week. So without further ado, please let, uh, wel- uh, in- join me in welcoming Professor Saskia Sasson. I want to say that it is really wonderful to have the three of you here at LSE addressing this subject. My subject is not extradition. I'm not an expert. I'm not a legal scholar. Uh, What I want to do, what I was asked to do, is to provide somewhat of a broader let's say, knowledge space within which extradition happens. 
Um, and I, um, I want to sort of very quickly run through a few items. But the first one is that, as you all know, or most of you know, all our states, whether that is Germany, France, the Netherlands, the U.S., are today under a state of emergency, state of security, whatever you may call it. Many citizens are not necessarily aware of this, which is actually serious. State of emergency, a state of security, basically enables a state to violate its own laws. The second point is that I think that while extradition affects very acutely, very sharply, a limited number of people, in my reading of what is happening with our liberal state, we should all be concerned. I often ask when I read some of the stuff, and I'll show you some of the stuff, question is, who are we the citizens? Because we really are losing rights, of all kinds, little rights, bigger rights, and we should develop transversal solidarities that include, at one end, the very extreme cases that we do every now and then hear about and which will be addressed here. So what I want to show you is, for starters, a map. I'm always terribly curious to know who has seen this map. This map is in the public domain. As you can see, it is all the government and private surveillance agencies in the United States. Most of this is private. These buildings are almost 10,000. The last one was finished just now in uh, Utah or Utah, whatever you call that state. And um, most people in the United States have never seen this map. Though It is totally in the public domain. It was produced by some very hardworking journalists within the Washington Post with experts, etc. These are buildings that are full-time, year-round, etc., etc., gathering data about all of us. My university has the right to read my email. It doesn't. Most good universities are not doing that, but it could do it if you want. I believe they're gathering so much data they'll never get around to analyzing it. That, that has happened before in the case of the United States. Your country, the UK, is not quite as extreme as this, but I would be very curious to know if there is also such a map. I mean, you're just a different geography if you want. Um, in all their materiality, this is an invisible fact. That also I find extremely striking as a theorist, if you want. How can something so material and so all-present be so invisible? I particularly like the very material part being invisible. Now here is just one little snippet, just to get you a sense. Washington, you know our capital, 33 building complexes for top secret intelligence work are under construction or have been built since September 2001. Next little point, just to give it sort of a shape. Together they occupy about 17 million square feet. This is in the capital of our country. Uh, the equivalent of almost three pentagons and 22 U.S. Capitol buildings. Capitol building is in the American sort of uh, imagination, history, and whatever, patriotism, the house of democracy. So that, all, that with all those buildings in charge of surveillance are far bigger, 22 times bigger than the Capitol. These are just little vignettes, but they tell a story. Now here very quickly, just something, just the latest data that we have. 
the black budget, that's standard language, by the way. You know, I didn't invent that. But here you can very quickly see 52.6 billion. This, is, this might not be totally correct, but this is not necessarily made totally public, but it is, you know, I'm not violating any laws. And here are the top five spending agencies, central intelligence, national security. You have by now read it. So we're talking about a serious domain where taxpayers' money winds up. The spending mostly goes towards data collection, data analysis, management, facilities and support, data processing, and exploitation. Nice word they put in there. The five targets, five objectives, etc., warning U.S. leaders about critical events, 20 million. I don't know, I thought it just might take a telephone call, but there are the 20 billion. <laughs> Combating terrorism, 17 million. Stopping the spread of illicit weapons, which is truly a global plague, much less than the other two notice. Conducting cyber operations, defending against foreign espionage. Now here the ACLU, of those who are interested, and I don't know if that exists for the UK as well, has compiled this sort of a report of incidents, not incidences, but incidents, where individuals or groups, First Amendment rights have been infringed upon by law enforcement agencies in 36 states. You can just go to them and sort of see it. But here is sort of a list that I have extracted who is seen as dangerous? Well, it's a very long list, but let me add, veterans are seen as dangerous if they are disgruntled. Environmentalists, Nation of Islam. Now, that you would understand. I don't understand veterans and environmentalists, and, and there are a few others that are not totally clear. The FBI adds improperly spied on American activities involved in First Amendment protected activities, listed the Green Party as potential future target of eco-terrorism investigations. There you go. Now, oops. So I prepared a very long list that I'm not going to go through, but just to give you a sense, and, and it's online, so if you want to check it out. And so what we know, we don't know everything, the NSA can do so far, what it can do with its capacities, right? And I'm thanking, as you can see. So here goes one long list. Just catch one line and read it. I'm not going to dwell too much upon this. But it goes, and then, and it goes on. So it can also track, the, our citizens' money is going for that. It can track the reservations at upscale hotels. <laughs> I'm just mentioning one. It can intercept the talking points for Ban Ki-moon's meeting with Obama, you know, etc. And it goes on. It can fake a USB thumb drive that's actually a monitoring device. It can crack all types of sophisticated computer encryption. But it can also monitor online behavior through free Wi-Fi at Canadian airports. You understand the level of, and then it still goes on. Last point, I'm just focusing on a few here. It can harvest images from emails, text, video conferencing, and more, and feed it into facial recognition software. Now, just now, just I just mentioned this because this is something that just came out. A new European, this is different zone, Europe, a new European Commission counter-terror plan 
will require, some of you may have heard of it, the blanket collection and storage for up to five years of personal data records of all passengers flying in and out of Europe. And this breaches a recent European Court of Justice ruling that blanket collection of personal data without detailed safeguards is a severe incursion on personal privacy. Now, when I put all of this together, I wind up with a very particular sense that our so-called liberal states are, and it's especially really the executive branch of government. That is the one we are talking about here. Um, the legislature may have a few minor functions, but they are that, that doesn't really count. And um, the executive branch of government has abused its power in other domains as well. I gave a lecture here not too long ago where I talked about finance and $17 trillion, half of those secretly taken. And that's, we're talking citizens' money and a few corporations that pay taxes still um, <laughs> that went to rescue the global financial system, 21,000 requests for cheap money. Uh, we only found out because of Freedom of Information Act. The debate was in the legislature, and it was about $320 billion. I find that outrageous, this kind of secrecy for that kind of action. When I look at what I just described to you, the way in which we as citizens are, because that is the logic of the system, for our security, we all are suspect. And all this data is gathered about us. I stand back and I ask two questions. Is there a better way for our security to deploy technologies that might in certain cases be very useful? Um, and then in the second question I ask myself is, who benefits from this particular concept of what is good or necessary for our security? I have only one answer to that. And that is the tech companies. It's a vast amount of our money, citizens' money, that is going into buying vast amounts of technical capacities. So to me, the logic that for our security we all first have to be suspect and have to be inspected, so to say, is a bit faulty. Thank you very much. Good evening. It's great. It is such an honor to be here, um, to be on this amazing panel, sort of intimidating to be on this amazing panel. Um, so I wanted to begin with a story, uh, and then I'm going to sort of raise a set of concerns, I think, around sort of the issue of human rights and extradition. Uh, before I begin, I just wanted, uh, in 2003, in the wake of 9-11, right, the United States and the UK changed its extradition treaty. Um, and I think many of us know this, but just I feel like it's important to speak it and what changes. And basically the big thing that changes is that the, uh, the evidence 
in order to extradite somebody from the UK to the United States doesn't have to be tested anymore in a British court, or what's called prima facie evidence. And instead, the United States has to offer some rationale for why they want to extradite the person, what, what reason, what sort of evidence, but that evidence doesn't get tested in court. So that treaty uh, is passed in 2003. It doesn't go fully into effect till 2006, 2007, when the United States Senate ratifies them. And so I wanted to begin with the story of the first person extradited under those new rules. Um, and that person is a young man by the name of Fahad Hashmi. And this story is a very personal story for me because Fahad Hashmi was a student of mine in 2002 and 2003 at Brooklyn College. Uh, Fahad took, we at um, Brooklyn College, you take a senior capstone seminar where you write a research paper, as I imagine uh, many of you do here. And so he had taken my senior seminar, and it was on sort of post-civil rights politics, so 1960s to the present US politics. And students have to write a research paper and this is the spring after 9-11. This is 2002. Fahad was a very, very devout, religiously devout, very politically active uh, young Muslim student. And so he wanted to do his research paper on the abridgment of civil liberties that Muslim groups were experiencing in the United States after 9-11. Uh, and so he writes this paper. Uh, and then the next fall he comes back and he says, I want to go on for my master's and I want to go um, study in the UK because what he wanted to do was international relations and political Islam and there were much better, uh, it was a much more, that conversation was happening in English universities much more than it was happening in American universities in 2003. So... He says, will you write me a letter of recommendation? I say, yes. I write him a letter of recommendation like I do for many other students, and I send him on his way. Fast forward three years. Uh, I should say a little bit. Uh, so he was very politically active, very politically active at Brooklyn College, very politically active in the city. Uh, he was a Salafi Muslim. He held very controversial political views, um, very critical of the United States foreign policy, very critical of the treatment of Muslims at home. Um, uh, and loved to debate, was, had this like, tremendously optimistic belief that you could win people over by debating. So he would debate all the time in class, outside of class. He was always just talking, 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 talking. Um, just really believed you could just convince people. Uh, so, so then 2006, I'm standing in the hallway, and one of my colleagues comes up and says, did you hear what happened to that student? Did you see the news last night? Because at the top of the news was a story that a homegrown terrorist had been captured at London Heathrow on a U.S. warrant for material support to terrorism, for military gear to al-Qaeda, as an al-Qaeda quartermaster. Right? It was a scary, scary story. Um, and my colleague and my chair of the department said, the chair says, we have been instructed not to say anything. Right? And that's kind of the message right, of the past decade. We've been instructed not to say anything. So, so it seems a little weird to me, but I sort of put it out of my head. And fast forward a year and a little bit, and another colleague emails me and says, have you heard anything about this student of ours? Do you know anything about this case? And I say, no. But it sits in my head, um, because as 
Um, as you heard, I'm also a scholar of the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and one of the things that we know about U.S. history is that people who dissent often come under um, come to be seen as dangerous, come to be treated as dangerous, and so there was something that wasn't sitting right, and so I called his lawyer, and um, I came to find found out sort of what had happened and where what was happening to him. And so at that point, um, so he is arrested at London Heathrow in 2006. He fights his extradition for about a year and loses. And in fact, loses quite quickly because he's a U.S. citizen. So he has even less rights to fight it uh, than others. And so he is extradited back to the United States. And he is put in um, Metropolitan Correctional Center in Lower Manhattan in solitary confinement. Uh, and he's not cooperating. And so they add on top of the solitary confinement something called special administrative measures, which sound very banal, but what they are is an even more fearsome set of isolation because they also wall off the person from communicating with the outside world, uh, which basically meant that he was allowed to communicate with his parents and his lawyer, but he wasn't allowed to send letters to anyone else he wasn't allowed to communicate with the news media, either himself or with his lawyer. Uh, and he was not allowed to see the news. Uh, he, was not, he didn't have a TV. He didn't, he, his radio was taken from him. And he, um, he was only allowed to see the news at a 30-day delay. And even then, they would take all the sections on the Muslim world out of his paper. Uh, so this is, a, this is a fearsome set of kind of isolation, right? So this is solitary confinement. Around, around that, a kind of even more of an isolation. Uh, he's being kept in 10 South MCC, which basically means this, he's showering in his cell, he's going to the bathroom in his cell, there are cameras in the cell, so they're watching him, there is no outdoor exercise, and this is three years pre-trial. And he is a U.S. citizen, but part of the evidence in his case is classified, and so he is not allowed to review it. And again, it is three years in pretrial solitary confinement when, as many of you may know, the U.N. has come out recently, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Torture has come out recently and said that there needs to be an international ban of solitary confinement for any more than 15 days because all of the research suggests significant health impacts after 10 days. And so he is there three years pre-trial. Um, he is being charged with four counts of material support. And I told you it was a very scary, those headlines were very scary, right? Military gear to Al-Qaeda, quartermaster for Al-Qaeda. And then you look behind the charges and it turn, it, what he is being actually charged with is letting a friend from the United States come and stay in his London apartment. And the friend had raincoats, ponchos, and waterproof socks in his luggage that allegedly the friend then took to an Al-Qaeda leader in Pakistan. And I'm pausing there for a second just to um, those, that is the basis of the charge. The military gear to Al-Qaeda is the ponchos, raincoats, and waterproof socks, and the material support is knowingly allow this friend to stay with him in his apartment for two weeks and use his cell phone. Again, he is facing evidence he cannot review. Uh, 
the day before trial, the judge allows the government to have an anonymous jury with extra security. What that means is that the jury will be brought in every day with extra security. And so one day, uh, which obviously then marks it as a dangerous case even before you've begun the case, and he takes a plea bargain um, and he is then sent to the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, the federal Supermax prison, where he, will, where he spends another four years in solitary confinement. And then this past June was transferred out of the Supermax into a CMU in Terre Haute. And so this is, I, I start here both because it is a very personal story for me, but also because this is the first of uh, these cases under this new treaty. And I would I would ask us to kind of think about a series of human and civil rights issues that I think Fahad's case raises. Um, the first is jurisdiction, right? Basically, under this treaty, things that are not criminal here, right, can then, under U.S. law, right, U.S. law in some sense trumps U.K. law. Um, and that's particularly serious given the material support ban that is passed in the United States in 1996. And what that does, what the material support law does, is that it criminalizes, it bans knowing provision of any service, training, or expert advice or assistance to a foreign, a designated foreign terrorist organization or an organization engaging in, quote, terrorist activity. Right? So that means that groups like the Taliban also fall under it. It does not require, like typical uh, criminal, criminal um, that the criminal justice system used to be in the United States. It doesn't require evidence of a plot. It doesn't require a direct connection with the foreign terrorist organization. It doesn't require proving a desire to help a foreign terrorist organization. It only requires proving knowing provision of a service, training, expert advice, or, you know, or a material, you know, or to a foreign terrorist organization. So you don't have to have a connection. You don't actually have to be communicating to Al-Qaeda. You don't actually have to have a plot. They didn't have to say, oh, the, pa the ponchos were going to be used here. They used them here. Um, so this is, again, if we think about the issue of jurisdiction, right, this now offers a landscape to criminalize behavior that is not possible under UK law. Uh, and I think Gareth, are going to be talk Gareth is going to be talking about a series of cases that follow Fahad's case in terms of this issue of, of jurisdiction um, particularly. The second issue is the issue of due process, right? Our, our image of the US system, and this is part of how the extradition treaty passed, was we don't need this prima facie evidence. We don't need it tested in British court because, in fact, the U.S. has this grand jury system, and so the evidence has already been tested to bring an indictment. But the U.S. grand jury system, as many of you know, and has been reported on a lot recently in the wake of the Ferguson verdict, the U.S. grand jury system, in most cases, is a rubber stamp. So just to give you one fact, uh, the, the most recent data available is from 2009 to 2010. So in one year, U.S. federal prosecutors brought 162,000 cases, 162,000. In only 11 did a grand jury choose not to indict. 11 
162,000. So all 162,000 of those went to a grand jury, and in only 11. So it's not a rigorous system of checks and balances. Uh, so that's the first due process concern. The second is the issue of classified evidence. Um, in 1980, the United States passed something called SEPA. Uh, the problem was that they were trying to prosecute U.S. intelligence officers who were spying for the Soviet Union. And what made that difficult was those U.S. intelligence officers would threaten to reveal classified information. So SEPA, Classified Information Procedures Act, is passed in 1980 to classify certain evidence, basically to make it possible to classify evidence to prevent gray mail by U.S. intelligence officers who are being accused of, of, of spying. Now, fast forward after 9-11, and you start to see SEPA used in a very different way, which is that it's now being used against people who have no classified evidence, right? Uh, somebody like Fahad doesn't have, is not in possession of classified evidence, but it's being used to classify certain evidence, which means that despite, again, how the U.S. justice system appears, right, and this basic idea that you get to review the evidence against you, um, under SEPA, certain evidence can be kept from the defendant. Um, and even though lawyers can be cleared to view that evidence, that's not the same as the defendant being able to view it in the The person, him or herself, will probably be able to see many more things than even a lawyer would be able to see. Uh, so that's the second due process concern. And I guess the final concern, and I think the place I want to end tonight, is on this issue of conditions of confinement. Um, Fahad's case was not an anomaly. Uh, this year, this past year, um, the first kind of report on civil and human rights in these federal terrorism cases was uh, put out by Columbia University Law School and Human Rights Watch, and they studied 27 cases. Uh, in 22 of those, pretrial solitary confinement was used with an average of 22 months. Uh, so that... Again, if we're thinking about the international standard, if we're thinking about um, the kind of health effects, if we're thinking about the due process concerns that get raised with that level of solitary confinement, that kind of prolonged solitary confinement, um, that kind of sensory deprivation, as we talked about, particularly, again, that in many of these cases there is an additional kind of um, application of SAMs. Um, and where I wanted to close, and I think Gareth is going to be picking up on this, is, as many of you know, um, there was a case that went before the European Court of Human Rights um, and that the European Court of Human Rights took some time with, um, but then ultimately allowed the extradition of six men to the United States to proceed. Um, and they allowed themselves to be misled by the United States and the UK about what conditions in the United States actually look like. And uh, they did so in a couple of different ways. The first is they refused to consider the issue of pretrial conditions. So if you actually look at the European court case, they are not even looking at pretrial conditions. And the second is uh, where they were focusing on was um, what was going to happen if people would be sent to ADX Supermax, which is the big, which is the federal Supermax in Colorado. And so the U.S. delayed, delayed, delayed in terms of turning over information and ultimately sent a random sample of 30 prisoners. Uh, ADX houses at capacity 490 prisoners. Uh, for all of the students in the audience, 
no professor is going to let you have a random sample of 30 students, 30 out of 490, right? But the United States gives this random sample of 30. Uh, in those 30, they find an on average of about two and a half years of solitary confinement. A less random sample of 110 prisoners there found an average of more than eight years in the supermax. Uh, they do not consider in their random sample the H unit at ADX. That H unit is where the people who are under SAMs are, um, are held. And so part of, I guess, where I would like to end tonight is to suggest that I think those of us sort of concerned with civil and human rights, I think, need to take seriously, I think, what, what this change in the extradition treaty um, has and is allowing and to sort of, again, start to raise questions about the kind of set of human and civil rights um, issues, devolution that I think we're seeing um, and I think begin to say maybe this is not the kind of policy we want. Thank you. Tradition is is probably a, a difficult concept to find anything wrong with, because the concept is that there is a fugitive offender who has fled from a country where he or she committed a crime, a serious crime, and in all justice, that person should be returned to face trial in that country. That's a concept, and there doesn't seem a lot wrong with that. But I was going to speak briefly um, to you about four cases um, where that is just nonsensical. Um, four British citizens, or three British citizens, and one long-term resident refugee here um, who had no connection except for one, for two weeks, with America, which sought their extradition. And so the, the net result of this, a quest by America for these men, which began for one of them in 1999 and took uh, until 2012 to achieve his removal to America on a plane the same time all four went, save for one. In the two years since they went, I followed them and I was going to report back on what I found. If you are a defence lawyer and you're asked to represent a person who's being extradited to a country of which you may know nothing of the criminal justice process or the crime that's alleged. You have to investigate and research if you are to challenge the case. And so in the course of the years of representing these men, 
I and others investigated the United States of America and what it offered for an extraditee. Everything that we discovered that would await these men who were alleged to be involved in terrorist activity in England, everything that we could find um, was terrifying. And what we found was with some difficulty because in the main, although perhaps the American criminal justice system is more familiar to us than our own. We are so accustomed to seeing movies, to seeing trials, to seeing the depiction of a process, and so are United States citizens. But perhaps they, on the whole, equally in American society, are unaware of many of the pillars that Jean has described on which trials and convictions are built. A solitary confinement, the threats, fears that produce an agreement to plead guilty and cooperate. The concept of a cooperating witness who gives testimony against his or her former comrades, that 97% of cases in the United States result in guilty pleas. Does that really mean 97% of accused persons are guilty? Or does it mean that something else is at work that doesn't work? Within hours of the High Court in this country ordering bringing the final guillotine down on the attempts to stop their extradition on sound bases the arguments were sound within hours the men were shackled blindfolded ear covers put on so they couldn't hear And in that sensory deprivation, which had we known, we'd have gone back to court and contested as a breach of Article 3, torture and inhuman and degrading treatment. With that introduction, they flew to America. And so following them, in the two years in which they went to their prisons, to see them, to their lawyers, to the courts. We could observe the process that was at work. Two went to Connecticut in solitary confinement. One, a vulnerable man in particular, acutely sensitive, acutely intelligent, a poet, were held for two years in solitary confinement adjacent to prisoners on death row. And seeing them in the prison, they come in those Guantanamo suits that we know, shackled for months, shackled leg irons, shackled wrists, 
You have your legal visit for hours working on the case with shackled men. It was all as bad or worse as the arguments that have been for years in the courts here, for six years in the European Court of Human Rights, argued for. Solitary confinement. There are no words to describe the impact on a human being of deprivation, of stimulation, association, companionship with other human beings. The effect can be soon felt, can be mental, can be physical, and can be enduring for life. Dickens visited America and found the concept of solitary confinement puzzling, imposed by Quakers in an attempt to achieve redemption of a person who is facing punishment before the law. That concept of redemption is not in these prisons. They're purpose-built to deprive of stimulation. They're painted with colours that deprive you of stimulation. The windows deprive you of stimulation. It's deliberate. And as psychologists in America who've bravely fought what has been done there in the name of justice say, there's been a rage to punish, a rage to impose cruelty as part of punishment. But very quickly, the cases, the edifice on which these extraditions have been finally achieved, the courts persuaded here, shamefully, and in Europe, shamefully, that there was no barrier to extradition, that our ally would treat all well. Very soon, the first case, the Connecticut case, began to fall apart. As a Connecticut connection, the grand jury had been persuaded a Connecticut connection. When the evidence came, there wasn't a Connecticut connection. That had been misleading. So they need never have gone. And the expert who claimed that all that he could see of the evidence equated with Al-Qaeda and quoted authoritative sources to prove it was shown to have inserted the words Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in the text where they had never been before. He was withdrawn as a prosecution witness. There will be a burning moral incentive in the face of this injustice of two men wrongly accused, two men innocent of involvement in terrorism because they had involved themselves in a website in the late 1990s of Islamic interest. There will be a burning imperative to proclaim your innocence and plead not guilty, but that is not what this is about. You can be a lawyer from the UK. You can say this is not right. And you can argue with lawyers there and say they must not plead guilty. And you can have good lawyers in America who care 
The lawyers in Connecticut were really magnificent and cared about those two men. But you can say you cannot, and they can be saying you must. Because what you're facing, you have a gun to your head if you are facing life without parole, if you're convicted. What should the advice be if the lawyers are certain that you might or will be convicted? What should the advice be? The common denominator of the men who went was that all were Muslim um, and all were innocent. That was the common denominator. But the way in which the courts, first in England and then in Strasbourg, considered the cases, you could see, didn't like solitary confinement, didn't like the concept of life without parole, thought that it was on the cusp of Article 3. We're prohibited, we're prohibited from extraditing people to a country where they would face very likely Article 3 prohibited treatment. We cannot do it without being in breach of the European Convention. And one could see the courts here uncertain. The courts in Europe for six years they took on these cases, six years to consider the case. And you could see the political swing when this country fought a pitched battle against the European Court to say, if you keep finding against the UK, interfering with our domestic affairs, we're going to withdraw from the European Court. It's a constant threat articulated, which the newspapers, many of them, to their shame, echoed. What's Europe? What are these commitments? These were the commitments post-World War II that we would never ever again indulge in this treatment. So this was an opportunity, and it's tragic that it failed. It was an opportunity not just to confront for us, for extradition, the practices, but an opportunity for those in America who campaign against the use of solitary confinement, the use and abuse of solitary confinement, Um, to be able to articulate it. The the courts found that if you could shout through a ventilation pipe to another prisoner and be heard, that meant it wasn't truly solitary confinement. You could be in touch with another human being. And if there was a remote chance that a governor, somewhere along the line when you were perhaps 99, might give you... um, parole or a pardon then that wasn't really life without parole there was a prospect a glimmer of hope the second case even more shocking in a way um, of a man extradited to the New York to New York for 200 murders again a Muslim again innocent he had fought his case since 1999 
He almost won in the magistrate's court here. The district judge just didn't have, didn't have what it should have taken to do it. All in cases, the concept of terrorism, the concept of a link to Al-Qaeda, frightens and intimidates, and it's meant to, frightens and intimidates the courts. But that man facing trial in America had the 200 murder charges withdrawn. Withdrawn. There really wasn't any evidence in the first place. But he was there, and the gun to his head plead guilty to something else. Doesn't really matter what. Plead guilty to sending a claim for some bombings after the event. The man was a journalist. Plead guilty to that. Take a hit of 25 years in prison, and the murders will go and you won't risk life without parole. What's the advice to be? What do you do? What decision does that defendant make? He's a painter. (coughs) Tulher in Connecticut was a poet. This man is a painter. He's won award after award here, had exhibition after exhibition. In the year of solitary confinement, in the MCC, which Dean's referred to, is painting with a, a stick that you have cotton wool on to clean your ears, a stick and coffee remnants and jam. Those were his paintings. And he's pleaded guilty. The last person won his case in Europe the court said it was too dangerous he'd been in prison here fighting extradition he had had a total breakdown he was transferred to Broadmoor Hospital where he was for six years the hospital throughout said he could not be safely transferred back to a prison here where there'd be association activity warmth, kindness from other prisoners, he could not be transferred to a prison here without danger of impact that was Article 3 forbidden. Case came back here. Within one day of the final decision of Europe, Theresa May said, I'm going to extradite him anyway. I have sufficient information that's new. He'll be safe in America. He won again in the High Court here. High Court said, not good enough. This is a man who needs to be in hospital. America asked for 60 days to come up with an assurance that he would be in a hospital, not a prison. They gave that assurance. He would not be moved until his treating clinician in America thought that he could be moved to a prison. The whole debate was how long it would be that he would be awaiting trial, he would be in a hospital a thousand miles away from New York, how would he get there, wouldn't have to get there till the trial and then it would be sorted. Within one week, he did go to a hospital, 
but within one week he was in the MCC prison in New York. Within one week. And the whole of extradition is based on assurances, that promises will be kept, that assumptions made about each other's system of justice will hold good. We have faced and we've been complicit in a post-9-11 world in which Bush, Rumsfeld, Cheney blitzkrieged the concept of due process, ransacked the world for suspects and took them either to black holes, dark prisons or to trial through extradition and we have been complicit in that process. We don't have a great deal to boast about in terms of what we do ourselves. We have Belmarsh Prison in which it's increasingly full of young men who don't really know why they're there as we stretch our definitions of terrorism. But we could have done this time something of value both for ourselves and for the citizens of the United States, and we didn't. Is it too late? No. Of course it's not too late. The European Court has now reversed its decision on the concept of life without parole. It's now said that it can be a breach of Article 3. And so the gun that Abdul Bari has had put to his head on the basis of which he was extradited, that it's all right, the European Court has now said it's not all right. It's not too late to say that we won't tolerate this. It really isn't. As the speakers have said, extradition doesn't affect that many people, and it's not that well-known. But it's so fundamental to what goes on in terms of what we allow that it is worth knowing about and I would just say one last thing as we're in an academic institution and that's to um, pay tribute to Jean who as a teacher of Mr Hashmi stood up and has fought for him and has campaigned and has taken the issue of isolation and him it's become her life and we are at a time when in this country disgracefully academic institutions are being told that on pain of criminal penalty they're to inform on their students they're to pass information to the authorities so I applaud a good teacher Thank you all so much. So we've heard from Saskia about the security state with its immense powers of control and its presumption of suspicion. She posed the question, who benefits, and said tech companies. But we might also pose the related question, whose security is involved here? Clearly, some people are being made very insecure uh, in recent years. Jean highlighted changes in the legal framework for extradition. 
the uh, linked to broad uh, the, the introduction of broad broadly framed uh, material support bans and in that connection uh, changes in uh, jurisdictional bases for extradition and in due process safeguards along with the introduction or reorientation after 9-11 in the United States of secret evidence laws. Uh, Gareth uh, highlighted the way in which extradition is a logical part of efforts to prosecute cross-border crime, but that that logic begins to unravel uh, when it's detached from the essential conditions in which extradition can appropriately occur. Those conditions including due process safeguards and humane treatment of uh, those to be extradited uh, and humane conditions of uh, confinement and gave us, I think you'll agree, an extremely uh, vivid and uh, confronting, deeply affecting portrayal of the organised cruelty uh, that we've seen uh, in, in recent years linked to the miscarriages of justice, the emptiness of assurances, and finally, the work done by the concept of terrorism itself, the way it intimidates, paralyzes, and and itself, in a sense, unhinges rational thought. So with with those points on the table, let me now invite you to offer your thoughts and comments. I'm going to take your interventions in groups of three or four. Um, Please uh, uh, um, give your name and, if you wish, any institutional affiliation. We have roving uh, roving microphones. If you could signal now uh, questions, comments over here. Hi, my name's Adrian Apple. Uh, this is a question for Professor Saskia Sassen. I really enjoyed your talk. It's both relevant and shocking. I wonder whether there are any success stories of the whole system that is set up. Are there any evidence that um, terrorist attacks have been prevented? Maybe uh, we can just see if there's anyone else at this moment, or perhaps people are still thinking. Yes. Thank you very much for this brilliant talk. Could you say, um, is it, well, it probably may is the case, but is it true that uh, any people or how many people in American jails accused of uh, terrorism or like offenses like that who are actually generally innocent? If anybody could say the percentage of people who might be generally innocent who are not involved in this? Thank you. And then one more, I think, at the front, please. Thanks. Hilary Stauffer, a visiting fellow here at the LSE. I wondered if um, Ms. Pierce could expand on if there are any reparations or anything paid to any of these people that are accused, set in solitary confinement, extradited, and then later found innocent, either certainly not by the U.S. government, I know, but if there's any impacts on the U.K. government for these policies. Great. Thank you for those questions. There'll be another round in a moment, but why don't you two just uh, members of the panel respond now? Um, if the strategy has worked, you know, as, as you know, I, I sense some irony probably in your question. This is very difficult to establish, and I certainly don't know. Um, we, what we do know is that it is an abusive system. Secondly, what we do know is that it is extremely expensive, and one must ask a question 
all of this could we invert you know invest it in something better like enabling jobs of in 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 places in in a city in a country where you have very angry people because they are dis- desperate etc you know so even from within the logic of the system there is quite a list of ways in which it would be more likely that you can ensure security. Now, the question at the heart, I mean, what you really are asking, terrorist act, etc., it, it's just impossible to establish, I think, and, and experts will say that too. What we do know is that this kind of system, and certainly what has been described here, which are very, very extreme cases perhaps, is that it abuses the rights of average citizens. And people have been taken, you know, to court without money, much ground. So I would say when I stand back or when we stand back in 10 years or in 100 years, I don't think it would be seen as a system that is worth having. I, I am pretty convinced of that. But there, is a f- there are a few other items, but maybe afterwards I don't want to put it out there. And then there was a question of, to do with miscarriages of justice or wrongful convictions. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess I would sort of push back against the question of innocence in that I think people have rights not because they deserve them, but because as citizens we have decided that everyone should have rights And so I think, do I think that a number of these cases people have been innocent? Yes. But do I think that that matters as the place to start a conversation about human and civil rights? No. Um, Do I think that even if you're guilty, I mean, I think we're talking about a system of torture. Um, And I think we could do better. We should do better than this. We could be better than this. Uh, regardless of of the question of innocence, that even if somebody is guilty, should even if if a person has done something that is against the law, let me say that that is that worthy of torture. And I would answer no. Thanks. The, the question as to whether I think it was the question reparation um, whether, I think that's well if you have 97% plead guilty then it's a very difficult statistic to unpick Um, but all I can do is talk about the cases I know and the last man I mentioned who was in Broadmoor um, had gone to America for two weeks in 1999 and had been at a farm in Bly, Oregon where there was a discussion about having a lawful Muslim, I'm not sure what you call it, but a a place where Muslims could go 
and young men could acquire a Muslim education, including the ability to fire weapons in a state that allowed the firing of weapons. That's, in fact, he went and there was nothing there, so he came back. How do you talk about whether that's innocence or not? It's a stretching of the concept of criminality so greatly that any sane person would say that he is innocent in, in fact or in law and that was in each of these cases what the British police said they said they would not prosecute any of these here because there was no evidence that they had committed a crime in each case we were saying please prosecute so you have a number of countries that have erected safeguards for instance Sweden will not extradite Swedish citizens but if an extradition request is received it will have to make a decision about trying them themselves that's the obligation there are other countries because of the conditions of detention will allow extradition Israel is one, the Netherlands is another on condition that if found guilty and imprisoned the person will be returned to serve their sentence of imprisonment in that country so there, there are different factors at work here but in relation to the other question that I, I think I understood about has this stopped terrorist attacks or has it prevented it's just an observation but the man who's on trial in New York where the 200 murder charges were dropped has had a number of co-defendants one whose name was Gilali, was seized in Pakistan, was held in a black prison for two years, was subject to every form of torture imaginable, was put on trial then in Guantanamo on that indictment, and then suddenly whisked over for trial in New York two years ago. What's that about? Is that due process? But even worse... When I was there seeing the defendant I know in January, this month, yes, at the beginning of this month, um, his other co-defendant died. His name was Al-Libi. He had been seized in Libya by Americans, no extradition, no deportation, no nothing. A swag goes, squad goes in, grabs him, throws him into... New York, on trial, co-defendant. He turns out to be terminally ill. He's taken for an operation and then another operation, and he had come back into prison after a day, infected, and the day I was there, he was whisked out again to hospital and died there. What is that about? The reason I ask does that stop terrorist attacks as I saw in the news last night of an atrocity in Tripoli an attack on foreigners in a hotel in Tripoli that claimed it was revenge for the death of this man, Alibi so whether or not it stops one terrorist attack injustice breeds injustice yeah. yes the back here. 
point, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I was wondering, with the increasing privatisation of security and uh, prisons in general, um, has the role of profit had an impact um, on extradition? Thank you. Yeah, good question. Over here. Yes. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Maria Norris. I'm a PhD student here at the LSE. And first, I just want to say that as a young academic in the field of security and terrorism studies and a woman, it's extremely encouraging to see the four of you today. So thank you very much for that. And my question is regarding the concept of terrorism and the development of the concept of terrorism since 9-11. I wanted to know if you can make a comment to all four of you on how the development of the concept of terrorism has affected the erosion of human rights since 9-11. Thank you. And then another question right here. Um, hi, I'm Shamim. Um, my question's for Gareth Pearce. Um, the Conservative Party threatened to uh, scrap the Human Rights Act if they're re-elected after the general election and withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights. So what do you think will be the impact on our ability to defend against um, extradition to the US if that happens? I'll just take one more point from the back. Yes. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Um, this question of innocence, sorry to backtrack, I've been in high-max security prisons in the United States as well as what are called detention centers, specifically to visit asylum seekers who were all innocent. No charge except for being asylum seekers. And I've seen the conditions of virtually solitary, of totally solitary, of being boxed up in what you might call a coffin, but it's, you stand there. If in anguish some explosion happens, which of course can happen to people who have been so cruelly used, the concept of innocence seems to have vanished from what I hear. There's a concept of cruelty and an actuality and a program which is so cruel that I shudder to realize that there we have those in our government and those in our system who have become that cruel in becoming complicit. Thank you all for so much. Uh, well, that was quite uh, a set of questions. First, uh, very quickly on, on profit, I have actually been trying to, to understand how the profit motive in the United States works in prisons. And there are, there's a lot of that. Huh? They are making a lot of profit, private corporations. Uh, a lot of labor using prisoners for very cheap work. And, um, and there is also, and these are private prisons, you know, and, and there, are, there are two tendencies which are sort of interesting, I think. One of them is that the body of the prisoner is the source of profit. So they are keeping in prison people who are like 95 years old, they can barely get up because it makes profit. Um, the other the other thing that is happening is in sheriff's offices and such they will actually circulate a prisoner 
because then they make more money, you know, more more of the... I mean, it, it's just a disaster. The profit motive is a totally corrupting. Finally, a judge has been sent to prison because he was just favoring all this, these private prisons. By the way, private prisons are also being developed in the UK. I, I'm sure they're not as extreme a case as in the United States. But it also has meant that that famous rule, three strikes and you're out, you know, when for people who were selling just a bit of marijuana, whatever, well, that brought in a lot of, you know, sources of profit. The second question I quickly wanted to, to address was terrorism. Now, I, I just want to look at one element. It's a variable, I think. In, in terms of the question, how you ask it, it operates in many different ways. But there's one little sort of at one edge, sort of an innocent edge. As some of you may know, immigration has moved, has been moved to homeland security. You and we used to have an immigration naturalization service, which was a rather problematic service in itself. But this is truly serious. So now we recall Oh, yeah, immigrants. They're immigrants. They are not. At the same time, I just mentioned three vectors here that create a picture. And that, that is a kind of terrorism, but it's not the traditional notion of terrorism. So that's one vector. Second vector, under state of security, the attorney general, and this starts really with Bush, eh? the attorney general under Bush, can actually uh, make local systems work for enforcement and imprisonment vis-a-vis -vis immigrants, which are against the law. National law does not enable, etc. So we have now over 200,000 uh, immigrants. Some of them are citizens, some of them are green carders, and some of them are un undocumented, as we say. And they are in jail, and some of them have been in jail one or two years. What's the little device, the little move, that makes that outcome possible, they have not been granted a hearing with a judge. It's not quite the pretrial that you were describing. But this is also interesting. That, that is a terrorizing possibility that you don't get a hearing with a, job, with a judge. So you might be innocent, actually. The final point I very quickly wanted to get to is this issue of asymmetric war. So I have worked quite a bit on asymmetric war, which means, you know, nowadays when the United States goes to war, it does evidently frequently, it's not about to go to war with France. Chances are the enemy is an irregular combatant. And the kinds of liberties that are taken under those conditions, and there is quite, a, quite an emergent research literature on this. Asymmetric war urbanizes war. So it creates a very expanded domain where innocent for innocent people to be caught in the web of suspicion you know some of the cases that we have described are like that when asymmetric war begins to move as as we now know you know the bombings in london madrid Paris. Look what has happened in, you know that after Paris there was Brussels and Berlin. They have all totally mobilized. After the nice march, I was so upset that all these leaders of countries who violate the rights, that they had to mess up that beautiful event that was at manifestation that Sunday. And then you had these, this, this, you know, the, the events in Brussels and Berlin, they have all mobilized the police. The whole of Paris, the whole of Brussels, is a zone that is now under control. Those are all kinds of terrorisms. You know, it's not the traditional terrorism, but that's state terrorism, I would argue. I mean, this is a very... Clearly, the events that happened in, in Paris were terrible, right? But then I stand back... Final comment. I know I'm talking too long. Um, 
what if you know what what is one of the strategies when you think about cities that would maximize security in a in a robust sense a good sense i think that people feel that they can be different and that they can be fully integrated via jobs via civic activities and that is a tissue that we're destroying with the militarizing of police forces with all the surveillance so we are setting ourselves up for truly bad futures, I would say, because everybody is suspect, because there are too many people who have simply expelled from the tissue of the civic, of membership. So to me, there is, the extradition is an extreme version where you see the absolute abuse of the system, but really it is a variable that penetrates a lot of other domains. Sorry that I talked too much. Withdrawal from the European Convention, would you like to say something about Yeah, um, I, d- I don't think I don't think the UK will. I think it's political posturing of a very convenient kind. I fear that some of these cases, the extraditions ordered by the Home Secretary, have been evidence of the kind of political posturing that underlies those statements. But they're glib, shallow, stupid statements made by politicians on a mission in particular with an election coming up and in particular when they are vying for political high office but it will be a constitutional catastrophe and I don't think it'll happen but it's deeply damaging and um, It, it's playing its part and the cowards run amok and just vote like sheep. But um, to, to weave it into the other question, which is terrorism, how do you define it, how do you tackle the concept, that in 101 more extreme ways is political posturing too more often than not. The classical acts of terrorism that everyone can understand, of extreme violence designed to terrify as wide a community as it can, we understand that. But the use and abuse of the concept in the way it is now, um, it frightens the recipients, the recipient suspect communities. It's a repeat of McCarthyism, the threat that you are a member of a suspect community and that what you do and you think puts you into that category. And it's too complex and it's too politically nuanced to be able to talk in a blanket way. I, I don't remember which general in the Bush administration it was, which advisor was asked, how do you differentiate between a terrorist and a freedom fighter? And he said, we don't. And that was sadly the approach of uh, Tony Blair. Immediately 9-11 happened. And read his memoirs. I recommend reading his memoirs. Um, they are truly frightening and you can see the beginning of the narrative in which we are now he said the minute I realized the planes had struck the twin towers I could see it all I could see the splashes of color joined up 
and before the pieces fell in the kaleidoscope I saw that we had to reorder the world and the splashes of colour he talked about were the resistance movements that became the Arab Spring so how do you talk about terrorism? Um, sort of two quick things. I think one of the things that I think in your question about terrorism that I think we need to speak publicly is the racialization of that word, right? And that if we think about the United States, if we think about over the past few years and sort of acts of mass violence that have happened in the United States and when the word terrorism is used and when it is not used, so a man shoots up a Congress at your corner, right? Shoots a U.S. congressperson, Right? And that word terrorism, right? when Jared Loftner, a white man, shot Gabrielle Giffords, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, right? we didn't see the same kind of language of terrorism. And so I think if we're going to, I think to interrogate the, wor- the word and the way it's used is also to have to talk about the way that that word is a cover and becomes a way to target Uh, certain populations and to then leave other acts of mass violence, terrorizing violence as individual psychopath, individual dysfunction. Um, And so I I felt like we haven't spoken about race tonight and I wanted to. And then the second thing I wanted to say in terms of this profit idea is is to sort of think about it more as an economic system. Um, So this idea of a military-industrial complex, right, that Dwight Eisenhower talked about, I think we need to be thinking about what, about a concept of a terror-industrial complex. And why I say that is because if, I mean, Saskia just sort of just got at the surface of the amount of money that all of these government agencies are, are getting and spending. And if you are getting that kind of money, you have to have something to show for it. Right? And this is what Dwight Eisenhower cautioned against the, you know, in terms of the, the original idea of this concept, right? is that it becomes a system that needs to reproduce itself. And so if we're spending that much money, what do you need? Well, part of what you need to do is you need to catch people and you need to convict people. And how do you convict people? Part of that is by the use of the measures that we've been talking about tonight. As a footnote to that, uh, one might imagine that first there's terrorism and then there's counterterrorism as a response to it. But what if there's first counterterrorism and terrorism then gets thrown up by counterterrorism as a way of justifying that whole apparatus? Well, uh, we we need to to end now. It, it, it turns out that uh, extradition is, seems like a small topic, but its human consequences are huge and terrible. And moreover, it's a window onto this vast uh, terrain, uh, this vast and terrifying terrain in which we find ourselves today. Please, I'd like to thank you all uh, for, for participating, and please join me now in thanking, especially our. Panel.